Welcome to EK on the Go, recorded in the University District at Jack Straw Cultural Center. If you ask nearly anyone living in Seattle what they most love about the area, most will mention its proximity to nature. Nature, of course, provides land for recreation. One of our most cherished urban landmarks, the Pike Place Market, is a farmer's market, and its success also depends upon land for locally grown fresh produce and flowers and such. So whether it's access to healthy food, parks to play in, or hiking trails to beautiful peaks, land is one of the things we most love about living here. Today, we're going to learn about an organization that has spent the last three decades protecting this land. They've done this by securing over a quarter of a million acres of land in over 450 real estate transactions. And this work stretches from the farmlands and river canyons of Yakima to the estuaries and forests of Washington's coastline. This organization is Forterra. Today, we're going to learn about what strategic focus and policy innovations form the basis of protecting lands, the ways in which denser communities like those in Seattle have benefited from focusing on protecting land, and the relationship between a healthy human society and even social equity and conserving and protecting farmlands, forest lands, working lands, and such. And stick around. At the end of the show, we're going to hear about a few getaways worth visiting. So let me introduce to you Nick Bratton, Senior Director of Policy for Forterra. Welcome, Nick. Good morning. Great to see you. So I just wanted to start from the beginning. Tell us where you grew up. You know, what's your journey? My journey to Seattle took a pretty circuitous route. It really began in Southern and Eastern Africa. Uh, when I was a child, my parents worked overseas. And, uh, you know, being a kid, you didn't have any choice. You went along for the journey. And so I spent uh, my primary school years in Zimbabwe and Kenya. So in Zimbabwe, I, live, I went to a primary school and wore the uniform and played cricket and had sort of the you know, public school upbringing. And then in Kenya, went to an international school where there are 41 different nationalities in attendance. Was it American International School or? Yeah, in Kenya, it was the International School of Kenya, but uh, run by Americans. So I attended AIS in Africa too as a child. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> in West what a, Africa. What a cool coincidence. In Lagos, yeah, anyway. So good. And then what brought you from South Africa to the States? My parents both worked at Michigan State University, and that was kind of our home base. So I spent my middle school and high school years in Michigan. And then, um, you know, Michigan is a beautiful state with a lot of wonderful outdoor recreation and wilderness opportunities, but it's also really flat. And I had fallen in love with the mountains. And so I wanted to move out to um, Seattle, where we had this very cool, vibrant community, but also, as you mentioned in your introduction, uh, the proximity to wilderness and mountains to explore. So I heard that you led river tours in Pazula in Natal? Yeah, in South Africa after college. That was my ticket to staying in South Africa was, was working as a whitewater rafting guide on the Tegela River. What's fascinating about you is that you're like a policy wonk, but you've I read through your bio and you have just an amazing personal firsthand work with nature and being out in very diverse natural land. So I'm just yeah, curious about well, that. I, I think it's, it's a really natural fit, no pun intended, because through my exploration of nature and interaction with people in the wilderness, I developed such a great appreciation for these special places that uh, mean so much to me personally, and also provide this space where people can go and challenge themselves and learn about themselves and gain a deeper appreciation for the world around them. So working, my work as a rafting guide and as a mountaineering guide, it was very satisfying in the way I could connect with people and share a very profound personal experience in the wilderness with them and teach them about the environment and ecology and nature. The catch was I could only connect with eight people at a time. 
because okay. that was the size of the trip that you know I would lead. So, what really made the leap for me from guiding to policy was standing on the summit of Mount Rainier. You can look to the west and see the whole transition of the landscape from ice to forest to kind of suburbs to our urban center on the coast. And just seeing that landscape scale from the perspective of the summit of Mount Rainier illustrated to me, really drove home the need that, you know, I can have a much more profound influence on the future of this region by working in policy where you can achieve change on the landscape scale rather than having these very profound and intimate experiences with a group of eight people at a time. Gotcha. You can reach a millions. And then I also understand that you worked in polar exploration. And can you share a little bit about what that experience was like? Yeah. So due to my background in mountaineering, which has a lot of uh, shared skills with you know polar regions because it's cold and there's ice and glaciers, uh, I was invited to join an expedition that was searching for a U.S. Coast Guard plane that had crashed in Greenland during the Second World War. Uh, and these are the only Coast Guard MIAs in the history of the service. So I spent, I was out there twice, once in 2012, once in 2013, assisting a radar survey. And then um, the follow-up expedition was to look for physical evidence of this missing plane. And it's not about the plane, it's about finding the crew who are on board to return them to their families uh, and bring them home. Uh, so that was that was a really special experience being in, I mean, that was the most remote and barren and pure wilderness I've ever experienced. Wow. And how is that search coming? It seems like it's gone on for decades. It has. Greenland is a huge place. And um, when you walk around out on the glacier, you can't cover a lot of area. So it's a big area to search. And the uh, the metaphor of a needle in the haystack doesn't even begin mm. to capture the scale. Mm. Well, good. Well, let's talk a little bit about Forterra and so forth. What is the relationship between land, Forterra, and the future for all of us? Well, future is intrinsic to our mission, which is the Cascade Agenda, which is a 100-year vision and action plan to conserve 1.3 million acres of working lands and open space and coast and habitat, but also to make our communities really great places to live. And our vision of the future recognizes the interconnected nature of the built environment and the natural environment, because those two are, they both need to succeed in order to achieve a sustainable future for everybody in the Pacific Northwest. So tell us a little bit about Forterra, the founding of the organization. I understand it had a previous name and it started in the late 80s. It did. Uh, 1989, I believe, is when the organization officially came into existence. That effort was volunteer-led, I believe. It was, yeah. yeah. I believe Jean Duvernoy was working as an attorney and had also been doing some work for King County. And um, I think Michelle might have been the the first employee of the organization. And uh, as the legend goes, they were working out of Jean's attic and, you know, shoestring budget and doing their best to complete these really bold conservation projects that nobody else would would go near because they were so complex and difficult. And that was at the time that the organization was called the Seattle King County Land Trust. Yeah, the Cascade Land Conservancy ultimately came into being as a merger of the land trusts in Snohomish County, King County, and Pierce County. And from that, we became the Cascade Land Conservancy. And, you know, that was our track and our trajectory for many years. And there was a real shift in our understanding of our mission and what we should be focusing on early in the new millennium, where we recognize that the cities and the built environment need to be part of the solution to achieve regional sustainability. 
we can't just conserve land and forests and farms and sort of lock up the pristine, precious open spaces that are out in the more distant areas of our region and say nobody can go there. We need to create really healthy, affordable, walkable, livable cities where people will want to live and want to move to and create great cultures and communities because if those places draw people, that will reduce the pressure to convert our precious landscapes that are you know, working lands and, and wilderness. It sounds like hard work was done sort of with that paradigm shift. I'm wondering what drove that or what was the epiphany that caused a shift in the early part of the millennium away from the notion that these are kind of pristine separate from human civilization into a different vision? That era was a little bit before my time, but uh, my understanding is that there was a a widespread recognition within the organization that we we needed to look beyond uh, the traditional conservation model. We kind of discovered some of the limits of of that approach. Uh, We wanted to do more and and create a a broader framework uh, for sustainability. And so we held this series of conversations called the Cascade Dialogues. And it was this very sustained and detailed set of conversations that we had with community members. And this could have been neighborhood groups, environmental groups, industry groups, tribes. It was this very inclusive and wide-ranging series of conversations. And what we we just did a lot of listening at that point. What do people care about? What are the main themes that are essential to the longevity and, and sustainability of this region? And so we took what we heard and synthesized the, the common points into the 25 strategies of the Cascade Agenda. So we didn't just come up with this mission in a vacuum. It was very much driven by what we heard in conversations with hundreds of people. Gotcha. It seems like that part of the goal here is you've got a specific measurable result, which is 1.3 million, and it seems like you're one third of it, maybe 300,000 acres. Yeah, I think we're getting close to 300,000. The number changes frequently as we close more conservation projects. But that goal doesn't necessarily mean Forterra will be the entity that achieves that level of conservation. It's sort of collectively between us and our partners, both in the public and the private sector. So we're not um, aspiring to single-handedly achieve that number. Uh, But in aggregate, that's the goal that we think can really support a sustainable region. So one of the interesting distinctions is, I think, that an approach that distinguished Forterra or its predecessor was the using public and private, you know, real partnership. You know, you talked about the Cascade Agenda, where it was really about listening and working with lots of different stakeholders. But my sense is that working with the private sector has been really critical toward all of these successes. It absolutely has. One of the revelations, I guess you might call it, of the Cascade Agenda was that in order to achieve the scale of conservation to which we were aspiring, there simply aren't enough public resources to pay for that scale of conservation. The money just isn't there. And if you use exclusively public funding sources, it would take a lot longer than 100 years to achieve that result. Uh, so we, we figured out early on that we had to integrate funding and business models and enterprise from the private sector to accelerate the pace of conservation and bring new tools and new drivers into our approach to achieving our mission. And one of these is uh, an area that I spend a lot of my time working on, which is transfer of development rights. And this is one of the you know, key policy strategies that, uh, that, that we're committed to, to help uh, accelerate the pace of conservation. So for our listeners who have no idea what transfer of development rights, it's hard to even say. 
It is. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, we'll we'll just call it TDR for short. Uh, But transfer of development rights is an innovative real estate tool that allows landowners like farmers and forest landowners to sell the development potential from their land and permanently conserve it. And by purchasing this development potential, developers can buy the right to build homes from a farm or from a forest and take those and move them somewhere where growth is desired. So, for example, in Seattle, uh, in South Lake Union, where we this tool has been used to great effect, a developer might want to add a few stories to a building. And downtown Seattle is a great place for that. We have jobs. We have transit. You know, there are schools. It's, it's you know, all the amenities and infrastructure are there. This is where we want growth. So you can buy the right to build homes from these lands where we don't really want growth and move them through the private market to communities where we do want to grow. And so that's all paid for through the private market, and you get more growth in places where you want it. The land in the working landscape is conserved permanently through a conservation easement. Uh, The farmer, the forest landowner, they make money by selling the right to build, and developers make money by selling more apartments and condos and floor space for office rental and so on. So you're really capturing that energy and and using the engine of the private market to make communities better places to live and also conserving our landscape. Well, one of the things I love about Seattle is innovation, and it goes back, obviously, to the gold rush and Eddie Bauer to other types of enterprises, organizations here, down to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where strangely, I mean, this little corner of the U.S. and the world has is just a hotbed for innovation. And it's interesting to sort of pursue this conversation as it relates to conservation, which maybe traditionally is sort of the opposite of innovation. But can you give an example of like a specific example for listeners of how TDRs were applied like to a case study so that to make it a little bit more palpable? It's a a bit of an abstract concept, and I think it's best seen to be experienced. And thankfully, we have many examples of this in our downtown landscape to look at. So... When's the last time you walked downtown, say, in, say, like the uh, 4th and University, 3rd and University neighborhood? All all the time, yeah. Okay. So you've seen Rainier Tower and the the huge new skyscraper. I think it's, what, now the second tallest building in the city. Uh, That was completed just a couple years ago. And the developer who built that um, took advantage. Do you recall the developer who they were? uh, Right, Runstead. Okay. Uh, And the developer who built that use transfer of development rights. And that building, the top 12 stories, uh, would not have been possible without TDR. So the developer said, hey, I want to add 12 stories to this building. Uh, And in order to do that, the developer purchased development rights conserving 14,000 acres of land uh, in the Snoqualmie Forest in rural King County. So one building right there that, you know, is filled with offices and people and in the heart of our bustling urban center. Just one building resulted in 14,000 acres of conservation without public money being spent. Okay, and then who's the, the owner of that 14,000 acres and uh, is it privately held? Yes, it's it's privately can, private land. Can you share anything about the, who the family or the individuals were? It's the Squamish Forest. It's operated as a, a working uh, as a working forest. Okay, yeah. so that means that for lumber and mm-hmm. yeah, okay. Yeah. So will it continue to be a working forest with this? transfer development rights is the restraint that it can't be developed into whatever, suburbia or... That's it. Um, I mean, TDR is very simple. I mean, it's all all in the name. So the the land that's being conserved, uh, the constraints are you cannot build and you cannot subdivide, but you can continue all other uses. Farming. Farming. You know, you can have, you know, farm weddings, agrotourism, your farm stand. You know, you can build 
silos and you know other infrastructure that you need for your operation, but you just can't build homes and you can't subdivide it. So with these transactions and was there resistance? Because a lot of times when uh, developers get to build things above the zoning limit, there are neighbors, there's winners and losers and opposition sometimes. But yet there's a very strong and compelling argument that this exception that was made in this case is very socially beneficial. Yeah, there. Are, I think there are a lot of human health and environmental and community benefits that emerge from this program. Um, and what really builds on that, I think, creates more value that a lot of people don't recognize because it's not you know plain to see, mm-hmm. is that this program that we designed that's being used in Seattle, uh, not only does it conserve over 100,000 acres of farms and forests and encourage growth in places where we want it, but it also generates a new stream of revenue for cities like Seattle and any other city that uses it to invest in infrastructure that support growth and neighborhoods in our communities. So that's over and above the sort of developer benefit that they've paid for. There's a kind of ancillary infrastructural. Yes. Yeah. So the city of Seattle stands to generate tens of millions of dollars in new revenue. This is money they never could have accessed before. And that money is going into building a new community center, improving streetscape and mobility in downtown and South Lake Union so people can get around better, improving uh, natural stormwater investments. So, you know, our surface water runoff doesn't overflow and into the sound, but we're using, you know, creative vegetation to deal with stormwater issues. So there are a lot of community investments that are happening in these neighborhoods that are growing as a direct result of this policy initiative that, that we led. So are TDR something that was invented locally or is it something, is it a real estate device that's been around much longer? You know, tell us a little bit yeah, about how that no, evolved. It's, it's been around for a while. Um, we certainly didn't invent it, but I'd say we've had a hand in kind of shaping the flavor of how TDR can and is used in Washington state. Um, I think the oldest example in the U.S. dates back to the 1940s, uh, which actually resulted in the conservation, or I suppose preservation now, of Grand Central Station. But the concept dates back, I think, to the Middle Ages in France, where um, the lords and uh, landowners of the era could get tax benefits by conserving portions of their land. Fascinating. Okay. Awesome. It's not new. Okay. But for Terra, I mean, one of the things that's interesting is that you have very specific goals. It's not a soft organization from the standpoint that you're putting into conservation acreage. One of the things that I noticed on the very landing page for your website is that Forterra acts quickly to acquire land. And so I wanted to talk with you about the kind of the urgency. It seems like that's embedded in your mission, that there's actual things that occur, and sometimes urgency is very important. Why is acting quickly important? Acting quickly is important for a couple of reasons. One is that the timing and cycle of a lot of public funding resources that support conservation acquisitions, they're very slow. And they have, you know, one or two year cycles and you have to apply to grants and there's a lot of competition and uncertainty in those outcomes. Um, Another is that land use changes quickly. Mm -hmm. So if a piece of property comes up on the market and a developer sees a golden opportunity to build homes and and working lands or in the rural area, they're not going to wait around for that. They're going to seize that opportunity. So we need to be prepared to not only respond to those, but to anticipate those uh, so that we can be ready to step in and to provide an alternative to a landowner who may be looking for a near-term financial return, but just to offer another option that doesn't result in conversion of their property. So you're modeling your behavior after private enterprise, really, that is sort of driven by opportunity. You know, you have a long-term vision, but you're really mimicking some of the tactics of the private sector. 
Yeah, I think yeah. that's fair to say. And are there cases or could you make the argument that when a property owner takes advantage of TDRs or just looks at the various opportunities, they can be economically more beneficial or, or equivalently beneficial oh, in development? I mean, when you're in any kind of resource enterprise, land is always going to be your biggest cost. If you're forestry, timber, farming, whatever, land is really expensive, especially in this region, as I'm sure anyone who's looked at real estate has discovered. And so we have a, an industry in agriculture, we'll just use farming as the example, where people want to get into farming or they want to expand their existing operations. And they just cannot afford to do that because prices for land are prohibitive. So transfer of development rights plays a potentially really important role in, in that market. Because if you remove the development potential from the land, it makes it much less expensive. Uh, so if you're a farmer and your intent is to keep your land and pass it on through the generations and keep it in production, TDR is a great option because mm-hmm. you you make money in the near term and you can you know pay off your mortgage, send your kid to college, invest in your operation or buy more you're land. Returning, you're increasing your return on equity yeah, in a absolutely. sense. The equity in this land is you're getting, you're mm-hmm. liquidating a lot of it. and You, you are. Can, it's, it's an asset that you're monetizing, yeah. but you still own the land and you can still do anything you want with it short of building on it. Gotcha. So it's a really attractive proposition for landowners to get some financial return, but help sustain their endeavors. And when you go to sell your land, because so much of that value has already been uh, recognized and, and paid out, it makes the subsequent sale much cheaper. So a land that doesn't have its development potential becomes cheaper for another farmer to buy into and, and get into the business. Right. Probably. Are the taxes lower? Uh, the taxes are lower, yes. Yeah. So we've talked about the kind of urban core where development is really beneficial because of all the social benefits. It's just transportation. It's logical jobs. And then the importance of preserving working lands, forests, and whatnot. But what about suburbia? Because I know I, when I kind of going through your website, you guys have done, you've basically taken on kind of a policy advisory role for governments and tribal governments and whatnot. And so Issaquah is an example, right, where I believe that you went in and you provided workshops or meetings to help a suburban area that is sort of facing change because of growth, navigate through that as it relates to their land, their public spaces and whatnot. Where does Forterra come in and sort of helping advise around policy for these governments? Well, I think that that demographic shift that you're describing has been going on for years, pre-COVID. I mean, we've seen a lot of growth in the cities and on the east side of Lake Washington and, you know, even further out. Carnation, Duval, North Bend, those communities have all seen growth that have really transformed their their size and their character. But the east side cities, as we think of them, you know, your Bellevue, Redmond, Kirkland, Issaquah, those cities have been job centers. They've attracted a lot of diversity and they have a really high quality of life. And those are all reasons why people want to move there. So consequently, you're seeing a lot of the same dynamics and pressures and challenges in those communities that you know we're, we're also seeing in major metropolitan centers. Uh, so Forterra appreciates that suburbs are also an important part of our landscape, and they play an important role in between uh, you know, providing homes for people who maybe don't want to live in an urban village in Seattle, but also want the amenities and the proximity and, and the quality of life that you have in, in an urban setting. And so we have partnered with several of these cities in a number of efforts, Issaquah being one, to help them think through what to include in what ultimately became their central Issaquah plan. Uh, so this was kind of a community-driven stakeholder engagement effort to help shape what priorities the city should be thinking about as they you know, charted their map for their future through their 
their planning efforts. And so we we convened a lot of meetings and we did a lot of really creative things as well. Like we would, you know, have movie nights in public open spaces and we would lead community bike rides through the city so people could see kind of firsthand how all these pieces fit together and also meeting their neighbors and creating a sense of community. And then we've also led a public opinion research project that we called Getting Growth Right, where we partnered with uh, several east side cities to do focus groups and interviews and surveys to really understand what is it that new residents and long-term residents value? Why do they come here? And what are their priorities for how they want their communities to look in the future? So uh, I think both of those examples really show the importance of listening and being open to input from community members to shape their own futures. Awesome. So we ask our guests to bring in something that is a physical object, and I was curious what you brought in. Sure. I brought in a photo album of my childhood that my parents gave to me as a gift. And there's one particular photo in here that I think is really special to me. Um, I mean, they all kind of show um, fun and and sometimes embarrassing moments from my youth. But this picture here I wanted to share. And uh, for listeners who can't see this, this is a photo of me, age six, barefoot, standing on a sandy track in the middle of the Kalahari Desert uh, with my mother and we're next to a 1971 Land Rover that my family took across the Kalahari Can I, can Desert. I take a peek at that? Yeah. So this this photo is particularly meaningful to me because it's one of my earlier enduring memories. And I think a lot of people can look back on their lives and think of a moment or an experience that was so influential and pivotal in shaping their direction in life and, and who they became. Mm. Uh, and, and I think looking back, that trip two weeks through the Kalahari as a six-year-old really set me on the course that has led me to where I am today. And then it's bookended by another picture of you, probably around the same time, but you're wearing an outfit of, do you mind sharing what yeah, that is? Yeah, no, the, the, uh, the next photo is of me in uh, kind of a mishmash of my safari gear and my Boy Scout shirt uh, from when I lived in Kenya. So. And you're standing above uh, the skull of some animal. <laughs> yeah, that, that's uh, the, the dried out skull of what looks like a Cape buffalo, I would say. Okay. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, that. no, it's, great. it's, it's fun what to a, look great back childhood. Yeah. So it's not always obvious that sort of nature conservation is tied into social well-being, social even justice or equity, right? Yes. So I'm just kind of curious, is there any way that you can share from your perspective, kind of the connection between social health and well-being and land? I think the interconnectivity of social justice and land is becoming increasingly evident to us. And we are taking a new direction to integrate that more into the work that we do and you know who we are as an organization and who we are as individuals. And equity plays a big role in land and land use decisions are a big part of, you know, fairness and sort of the legacy of how we interact with the landscape and, and who we are as a culture. So I think it's it's important to recognize that our current understanding of how, you know, land is used and shared and bought and sold, you know, that's a very modern European colonial framework of thinking about the land. And maybe the way we think about who we are as a region now is just one page in what is really a very long book dating back thousands of years mm. to, to when humanity first made its way onto this continent. 
And so we started to think more about how equity and land use really are interconnected. And so the, I think a common example that a lot of people can understand and, and relate to is, you know, the idea of redlining, where, where areas of cities that certain communities couldn't get access to for bank loans or for real estate to, to live because, you know, there, it was this sort of de facto segregation during a, a period of our recent history. And so recognizing the role of equity in land use uh, really ties in with our policy work, with our conservation work, mm. uh, with our affordable housing work, with our restoration work, because we want to take a more inclusive approach to the land and give people everyone an equitable means to access the land. And so we're recognizing that a sustainable future isn't just about conserving working landscapes and beautiful places and making our cities great places to be, but we really need to have justice and equity in those communities to make them places where everyone can feel welcome and included and, and see themselves in that future. Can you, for our listeners, give us a very specific example of kind of where that policy shift has been implemented? Yeah, absolutely. So one example is now when we are working, we'll use... Um, Everett, as an example, there is a, about a 90-acre forested parcel in the city, and they had put it up for sale, and neighbors said, hey, we don't want this converted or moved to other uses. We want to keep it as this beautiful 90-acre urban forest. And so uh, we were invited in to help evaluate opportunities. What kind of things could the city do with this land? And one of the first things we did was reach out to the Tulalip tribes, because uh, this is historically land that was theirs for, you know, customary and traditional uses. And, you know, we're on Coast Salish land. And so we asked the Tulalip tribes, how would you like to be involved? What ideas do you have for this property? And what kind of historical elements should we be taking into consideration? So we partnered with the city to commission an archaeological survey of the land, and we're working with the Toledo tribes as one of the stakeholders in this project to give input on what kinds of land uses uh, might make sense and you know, serve a wide range of interests in the future. Yeah, I noticed that your website has an indigenous land acknowledgement, and it's great to see that in action and as it relates to a specific initiative. It's integral. I mean, every area of our work touches on that because whether it's, you know, restoration of uh, riparian habitats, when it's conservation, uh, when it's development, uh, and certainly with policy. I mean, policy is my realm, so I'm most familiar with that. Right now in Snohomish County, the county government is in the process of updating its comprehensive plan, and that's an eight-year, you know, it happens every eight years. So this is, you know, one of the rare opportunities that comes around to change that. So we're convening a group of farmers and landowners and stakeholders that include the tribes in Snohomish County to gather input and give recommendations to the county on how it should shape its vision document for what it wants to be like in the next 20 years. Well, good. Well, I'd like to ask you um, just personally, is there a place that matters most to you in the sort of Seattle area? In Seattle, I think our network of parks is really special. That was not something I knew anything about when I moved here. That was not the draw. But once I came here and discovered it, I was really amazed by the network of parks that we have. Um, What's your favorite one? Well, I live in South Seattle, so I'm close to Lake Washington Boulevard. And so that linear park that, run, that runs up and down the lake and connects Seward and Frank Park and Mount Baker Park and Coleman Park, kind of that whole string of parks that are interconnected down there is, is really a place I love to go and walk well, and reflect. I appreciate the fact that you're a very systems person and you don't like to reduce it just to one thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, it's why you're very good in your job, I'm sure. So, yeah. 
And then um, can you share a place or two that's accessible to our listeners, like within a half a day drive that you think are magical and wonderful and maybe that Forterra was involved in? Yes. The middle fork of the Snoqualmie River is maybe one of our more celebrity conservation efforts. We were approached by members of Pearl Jam who had a personal connection to land in the middle fork because they would kind of go out there and hang out with Soundgarden and and other musicians, um, you know, many years ago. And they had a very special connection to the land in the middle fork of the Snoqualmie. And they approached us and asked us for help with conserving that land because they wanted that to remain intact in its natural state for posterity. Uh, So I think that the middle fork is is wonderful. It's nearby, lots of recreational opportunities and kind of a fun historical connection with the Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. Awesome. Um, there's no doubt that Forterra is committed to protecting and preserving places that matter in the Pacific Northwest. And I want to thank you, Nick, and your organization for being a part of that. Well, thank you for the invitation to come and share a little background about what we do. And when you do read um, negative news about the environment and the, the globe, it's just so nice to know that there are people that care that are actively doing things to make a difference. So um, for our listeners who want to get more involved, you can visit Forterra.org. And um, there's also volunteer and donation opportunities through your website. Yes, there are a number of things that people can do to get involved with the organization, be that donation, volunteering at events, uh, which is really fun to get out in the parks and help restore our urban forests. You can engage with us on social media. And, uh, you know, we also have an advocacy component. So if you want to engage in our policy work and help shape the future of your community, get in touch with us and let's talk about how we can do that together. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of EK on the Go. Daniel Gunther is our sound engineer, administrative support from Mary Christine, and we're recorded here in the University District at the Jack Straw Cultural Center. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and if you know of a place in the Seattle area that matters to you, please let us know about it. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you.